Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hey, how are you this Monday, January 22nd? I hope you had a great weekend. I hope you found something to do that uh, brought you joy and kept you warm. A little bit, a couple more days of this snow and rain and ice. And then um, by Thursday, it's going to be bathing suit weather. It's going to be in the 30s. Woohoo! Yeah, we laugh, but around here, 40 degrees, you break a sweat. Uh, well, it is going to be an eventful week. Uh, we um, have a hiatus in the E. Jean Carroll trial. One of the jurors is sick. And a couple of the attorneys also told the judge that they were not feeling well. So at least for today, <clears throat> that civil trial to reassess the damages Eugene will walk away with is on hold. Uh, tomorrow, we have the New Hampshire primary. And Nikki Haley is talking like someone who, you know, thinks... Does she really? She's talking like she thinks she has a shot or she's talking like she wants us to think she has a shot. That's a little bit that's a little bit closer to the truth. Last, uh, you know, Trump is so far ahead of her. I read one thing that said actually DeSantis dropping out of the race yesterday could hurt Nikki Haley more than help her because it is believed that anybody of those, you know, five or six people who were still committed to Ron DeSantis, that those people are much more likely to shift over to Trump. <clears throat> you know, on Friday, I read an article because Ron DeSantis's campaign manager came out and said, oh, you know, he's got plenty of money in the bank. He's with this, at least through South Carolina. He has the money to get through South Carolina. And the conservative columnist who quoted that last week said, I can only tell you one thing that absolutely means Ron DeSantis does not have the money to get through South Carolina. Absolutely does not. And uh, before New Hampshire even rolled around, he bailed. Of course, he did what uh, Tim Scott did and what Nikki Haley will do when she drops out. And that is they turn right around and endorse Donald Trump. Most of what I've been reading, though, because Ron DeSantis had such a poorly organized campaign. And because he was such a miserable campaigner, most people are pretty sure that his political life is over. Wouldn't surprise me, wouldn't disappoint me. So um, tomorrow night, tomorrow's New Hampshire primary, yeah, who cares? Who cares? Everybody's going to act like it's a big deal. Everybody already knows how it's going to turn out. The only question is, will Nikki Haley drop out after New Hampshire? Or will she get humiliated by losing her home state to Donald Trump? 
which will be that South Carolina primary in February. What do we think? I think Trump is going to mop the floor with her in New Hampshire. Supposedly, there's a lot of people in New Hampshire who like Nikki Haley. That's what I'm reading. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Lots of Republicans like Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. So don't be surprised. She's going to do better than you think. So how many points do you think she'll lose by? 30? 20? Is she going to stay and lose her home state to Donald Trump? I think Nikki Haley is going to drop out after New Hampshire is over and before South Carolina rolls around. She is going to rethink everything and... uh, She is just going to decide that now is not her time. And she is going to kiss the big orange butt. It is looking more and more like the orange one is going to pick Elise Stefanik as his running mate. Um. A while back in his Substack, Adam Kinzinger wrote about Elise Stefanik, and he said when he first got to Congress, he really thought she was terrific. He thought she was somebody who had a really bright future. She seemed really down to earth, seemed to have a lot of common sense. And he wrote that he has absolutely no idea what happened to her, how she became this butt-kissing MAGA that um, backs up all of Donald Trump's worst statements. She was the one that went on with Kristen Welker on Meet the Press and said that the January 6th people being prosecuted were hostages, which was an outrageous thing to say, but that's the new Republican talking line. And it was even more outrageous that Kristen Welker just sat there and didn't say anything. But um, Kinzinger was just shaking his head He's like the Elise Stefanik that exists now is nobody he recognizes from when he was in Congress. Oh, and this is very short, but very sweet. Uh, Donald Trump doesn't know how to say her name. He um, was talking about her recently. And either he doesn't know her last name or he couldn't say her last name. Elise Stefanik. Listen to what Donald Trump said. Do you see that, the three people? How good did Elise Stepanek do? Elise Stepanek. Elise Stepanek. I like Elise Stepanek so much, I might pick Elise Stepanek to be my vice president. You know, on Morning Joe today, they put together... At the very, very start of their show, they ran this clip before they even said hello in the morning. They put together a compilation of um, Donald Trump. You know, he's been not only can he not say Elise Stefanik's name. I'm sure you've heard he how he said that uh, Nikki Haley, he mixed up Nikki Haley and Nancy Pelosi. He said Nikki, he was talking, he was trying to trash Nikki Haley and saying, you know, I called her up and I offered her 10,000 troops and she didn't do anything. And Nikki Haley was like, I wasn't in government on January 6th. 
And Nikki Haley, who, of course, wants to oppose Trump, but not too hard, told her audience, I think it was, I don't know, in Iowa, that he's confused. He's confused. Ron DeSantis said he's lost a step. But on Morning Joe today, they put together a bunch of clips. He keeps talking about, he keeps mistaking Biden for Obama, keeps talking about how he ran against Obama and how um, he means Joe Biden, but he keeps saying Obama. He also said Joe Biden, you had to be really careful or Joe Biden would start World War II. I mean, it's just, it's just extraordinary. It is absolutely extraordinary. And at Morning Joe, they took a bunch of these clips and they put them back to back to back. There's a little reaction from Nikki Haley. There's a little reaction from Ron DeSantis. But all of these different speeches that Donald Trump made, it is just Amazing. And then when this comes out, you'll hear Mika and Joe um, talk about this for just a, a few seconds. But listen to this. With Obama, we won an election that everyone said couldn't be won. Obama dropped missiles and they ended up hitting a kindergarten. If that's the case, he's going to end up being indicted when he leaves office. Obama wants to. He doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to mention. He doesn't even mention them in his statements. It's all coming through Iran. Well, you mean President Biden? They uh, were interviewing him two weeks ago, and they said, uh, what would you advise President Obama? The whole world seems to be exploding. They never report the crowd on January 6th. You know, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people, soldiers, National Guard, whatever they want. They turned it down. He was confused. He was confused the same way he said Joe Biden was going to start World War II. We would be in World War II very quickly if we're going to be relying on this man. Clearly, Donald Trump is not the same Trump from 2016. When I came here, everyone thought Bush was going to win. They thought Bush because Bush supposedly was a military person. Great. You know what? He was a military. He got us into the uh, he got us into the Middle East. We came up with a new word for a new couple of words for corn. Viktor Orban, hungry, very powerful. He fronts on both Russia and Ukraine. They were funding Hezbollah and Hamas. When he gets off the teleprompter, there's there's a lot of mistakes, a lot of stream of consciousness stuff. We're also going to place strong protections to stop banks and regulators from trying to debank you from your, you know, your, your political beliefs, what they do. They want to debank you and we're going to debank Think of this. A very big hello to a place where we've done very well. Sioux Falls. Thank you very much, Sioux Falls. So, Sioux City, let me ask you, how many people come? How many people come from Sioux City? Oh, good morning and welcome to Morning Show. It is Monday, January 22nd. Good to have you all here with us this morning. With you, us, we you, have. Yeah. yeah. No, I was just going to say, you know, the uh, <laughs> the Nikki Haley thing that one. was was um, was disturbing. We talked about this on Friday about Obama and his problems. And there was actually some poor guy who said, oh, they're they're. They're making things up now to distract from Joe Biden. No, I'm not trying to distract from Joe Biden. Joe Biden's 
doing just fine. I, we're we're talking about the fact that time and time and time again, Donald Trump, who's obviously, as Ron DeSantis said, lost more than a step, and as Nikki Haley says, is really, you know, really confused up there. And she says, well, our kids deserve better than somebody that doesn't know where they are or what they're doing. Yeah. Isn't it amazing when you hear all of those clips together and people are worried about Joe Biden? The man, I mean, you know, everybody can have a slip of the tongue once in a while. But this is ridiculous. As uh, Joe Scarborough went on to say later, Donald Trump seems to think it's 2016. It is. um, It's extraordinary. And when you hear them all together. You you find it even harder to believe that this is the man who's going to wipe the floor with Nikki Haley tomorrow night in New Hampshire. It just doesn't make any sense. But then whoever said it did. Let's take a break. We got more to talk about right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. This is the 51st anniversary of the Supreme Court ruling Roe v. Wade that gave women autonomy over their bodies, said that what they did was covered under a right to privacy. And then it went away. And then it was gone. Went bye-bye. Our daughters have fewer rights than we have lived with. Something that I hope the 2024 elections, a ship I hope they write, because it is listing, it is taking on water, it is about to go down. It is, to me, outrageous that this supposedly respectful Supreme Court that um, recognizes precedent. Oh, except that in this case, yeah, we, we don't recognize. Yeah, we don't No, We don't recognize precedent here because it's, it doesn't fit with our religious beliefs. So let's get rid of it. 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which um, we have now said goodbye to over a year ago. The governor here in Illinois um, had a round table today, and he was part of, to talk about this anniversary, the the 51st anniversary of Roe Roe v. Wade being a decision by the Supreme Court, not the anniversary of its overturning. After that roundtable, the governor came out and made a statement. I want to share that with you now. Listen to this. We're having all the time uh, continual conversation, but this was a particularly important day, uh, the 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Uh, It's a bittersweet day for all of us because... Uh, The right to an abortion has been taken away from uh, more than half of uh, women across the state of, I mean, across the United States. And uh, we all believe that that is uh, incredibly unfair. And 
uh, and, uh, in our view, unconstitutional. Um, and we want to make sure that we're providing uh, care for people across the state of Illinois and for anybody that comes to the state uh, because they've had to escape uh, regimes, uh, state legislatures and governors who have taken away those rights. In the recent past, according to reporting in the Chicago Tribune, forget about the people in the state of Illinois, 70,000 women from outside of Illinois have come to Illinois to get the abortion health care they need and want. 70,000 women came here from other states. If you know if your religion is against abortion, then you shouldn't have one. But get your religion and the government out of my doctor's office. Each and every time, get the government out of the doctor's office. Get the government out of decisions doctors have to make in the ER. Get the government out of it. This isn't a question of making anybody safe. This isn't drug safety we're talking about here. This is something completely different. This is taking power from women, which is why even in Texas, when a woman who had a carrying a baby she really wanted, but was told the baby had a fatal complication, the baby was not going to live. The state of Texas felt she should carry that pregnancy. Don't fool yourself. This is about power. That's why you hear Republicans saying, you know, we should get rid of uh, contraception. Oh, we should go after in vitro fertilization. Oh, you know what? Let's go after no fault divorce. This is an effort on the part of some people to turn back the clock. I would say they are looking for the 1950s. That's my guesstimate. Just a few minutes ago, as we were going on the air, the Supreme Court released a decision. Interestingly enough, John Roberts and Amy Coney Barrett joined the three Democrats on the Supreme Court to say, yeah, you know, the Department of Justice does have the right to go down to Texas and take away that razor wire fencing along the border. The Department of Justice does have the power, is the agency to enforce immigration policy. Just came down. A 5-4 vote. Thomas Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh um, want to decide with the state of Texas. Amy Coney Barrett. John Roberts, who always was one of the more conservative members of the court, has recently become a swing vote. But John Roberts knows that the legacy of this court is in real trouble. He's been on the court long enough to care about stuff like that. And he sees how the court has become so partisan and so political and, frankly, so corrupt that he is starting to look like a middle-of-the-roader these days. He's doing his darndest to um, find some balance. 
I'm not quite sure what argument won over Amy Coney Barrett. You know, I think I told you this a long time ago. Uh, conservatives, when, when Brett Kavanaugh's name was floated for the Supreme Court, conservatives had some reservations about him. No, not because of any of the beer drinking sexual assault charges against him. They were concerned that Brett Kavanaugh was too liberal, too liberal to be on the court. And it seems to me he has been trying very hard since his appointment to reassure them and let him know he wants that Clarence Thomas gravy train, man. He wants those expensive yacht vacations and those speaking fees. Come on, conservatives, I'm one of you. So far. But I keep thinking under the right conditions, we might have some hope in Kavanaugh. Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, the fact that Alina Haba came out after one of the Trump court appearances and said that um, when the uh, I think this she was talking about the immunity question gets before the Supreme Court, Kavanaugh better um, side with Trump because he owes everything to Trump. He wouldn't be on the Supreme Court without Trump. And he better understand that it's payback time. You'd think stuff like that would tick him off enough to where he wouldn't. But you never know. Maybe if he sees Amy Coney Barrett starting to get really good press, you know, maybe he'll think, I want me some of that. Who knows? For now, though, he's uh, sticking with the conservatives. And Amy Coney Barrett and John Roberts are the ones who pulled this out for the Department of Justice. The razor wire in Texas has been overruled. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with um, nationally syndicated financial columnist Terry Savage right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am pleased to welcome back my good friend, financial columnist Terry Savage. You can contact her at Terry. You can read her stuff at TerrySavage.com and contact her at Terry at TerrySavage.com. Hey, Terry, how are you doing? Hello. Terry, can you hear me? Paul, I don't think Terry can hear me. I now I can, John. Now you can. Okay, we yeah. must have um, we must have found a fresh squirrel to insert into the system. <laughs> um, how are you doing? Happy twenty twenty four. The new year. We're into the new year already. Yeah. It's amazing. Yes, it, it really is. We're practically. I mean, we've we're we're. We're practically saying goodbye to January already. It's, you know, like it goes so fast sometimes. I think, it, I think the older we get, the faster it goes. I'm not sure about that. I don't want to make any comments. <laughs> yeah. Well, you but know, I, my dad said that to me. I think I turned, I don't know, I turned 30 or something. And I was like, I said to my dad, man, the last year went fast. And he looked at me and he said, Joni, the older you get, the faster it goes. <laughs> and boy, was he okay. right. But maybe well, that's because. And, and go ahead. I was saying we're missing all those January, you know, you made all those January promises, resolutions, whatever you want to call them. And you have only have another week or so left to get started on handling your money differently this year. 
Yes, I do want to talk to you because you had a great um, article on recommendations for 2024. But first, I want you to touch on for those people who are scrambling to get uh, financial aid for college. You, your most recent uh, writing was on these FAFSA delays. Talk about that, if you would, real quick. Oh, I spent yesterday after now I'm a personal expert on it. I mean, I wrote a column about it. I knew all about it. But as a result, uh, good friends of the family who have a daughter who's now in her senior year in high school and has been accepted at two schools um, had to fill out the FAFSA form. I'm not sure the family will get much financial aid, but she's applying for scholarships. So we went through it. So what happened is usually you file that form or fill it out in October. Um, and this year they decided to simplify the form. They made some significant changes. But they didn't get it done till December 31st. And the result was everybody got online the first week in January and the website, you know, just the website just went down. They had to create a waiting room. You have to do it early in the morning or late at night. We did get the form filled out. But the, the big advantage supposed to be this year is that the IRS will automatically download. First of all, you create a separate account for parents and children. That was always so iffy because your kids found out what you what your assets were and what you earned and so forth. Uh, it was a tif- difficult thing. But now each parent and each child has a separate account with a separate login. That was easy to do at fafsa.ed.gov. But the big deal this year is supposed to be that the IRS, you, you don't have to fill in your income and your this and your that. They'll take your tax return which is a 2022 return. When you think about it, we haven't filed 2023 yet. And they'll automatically download it. Well, we came to a halt. Only I on Sunday afternoon could uh, call the Mark Kantrowitz, the world guru on FAFSA, and say, Mark, I've got your cell. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. But we're doing this, and it still wants you to fill in your income, your this and your that. He says, well, that's because it takes about three days. You'll get a notification when you go back in about two or three days for them to download your information. So that's one of the big changes, but don't think it'll get done immediately. And after that, oh, there's, there's, if you go to terrysavage.com on the left-hand side, uh, there's a column called the new FAFSA, and you can read all the details. But if you have the bottom line messages, if you have a high school senior or a child already in college and you're going to apply for financial aid for the year ahead, uh, 2024, 2025, if they go to school in the fall, 2024, you are going to need to do some homework and be very sharp online and learn some new terms, the student aid index instead of the expected family contribution and so forth, but it should be easier to do. Oh, my God, I'm so glad I'm past that. <laughs> I, guess, I can't believe the kids are past college. Well, the point is you want to do it now because the system is so clogged up. And see what it does is you have to get it in because the schools, so you get admitted to XYZ schools, they are going to be sending you a financial aid package. But they can't make a financial aid package up until they get all the FAFSA from all the students applying for financial aid, which is millions. So they're pushed into a squeeze because the students have to let them know about what school they're going to accept. And so it's everybody's kind of in a crunch. Wow. Wow. They they did make it better, but, boy, it's, you know, there are going to be 18 million financial aid applications processed this year. 
are, well, are is it possible that there's going to be some deadlines missed, Terry? And what happens if through no fault of your own, you miss a deadline? No, you have to start doing it. Sit there morning, noon and night. I, I, okay, I'm, it's really easier than, than I mean, I, I, we did it yesterday. So it was actually pretty easy for the student to fill out her part and get her student aid number. And then for her to send an email to her father who clicked on the link and said, okay, your daughter is da-da-da-da-da, so here's what we need from you. And that with name and address and and how do you file, married filing jointly or whatever, all that was very simple. And then it said income. And you're supposed to click, but the IRS info didn't just download. And I went, what should you? He said, I have my tax return. I said, I know, but this is supposed to work. Well, it's taking a little bit of a delay. Do not delay. You really, really want to get the FAFSA in because you won't get your financial aid package back if they don't have it. And you need to, as a family, then you get accepted. Then you get the financial aid package. And maybe it's a very expensive school, but they gave you a lot of financial aid versus your state college which is less expensive but gave you less financial aid, you have to make that decision by May 1st, which school you're going to attend. And it may, the family may make that decision on what's more affordable. Wow. After they get the aid. Oh. <laughs> Listen, I mean, I, there are two complicated things in financial life. One of them is Medicare sign-up, which we talked about last uh, December, and one of them is financial aid for college. But it's important, both of them. Yeah, uh, the, the, I recently, um, on, the, on the latter topic, I recently um, made the application to get uh, Medicare Part B in, in addition to A. And I actually had somebody, an expert, walk me through it. And, you know, once they said, do this, do that, it seemed really obvious and it seemed really easy. But I, you know, sometimes you're just afraid of making a mistake on this kind of thing. And it's good to get whether you go look at something up online or you call somebody you trust. It's kind of nice to get some input on on some of this kind of stuff. It's very complicated. And let me say, if you made a mistake... I'm going to make this brief because you'll probably have a commercial any second, but as far as Medicare is concerned, you get Part A at 65. It doesn't cost you anything. It has no impact on you except if you're still contributing to a health savings account at work, you could no longer contribute. So sign up at 65. Then when you're no longer being covered for insurance by your employer, if you continue to work for a while, you don't have to sign up for Part B. You could sign up for Part B. You should sign up just before you lose your employment insurance. That can be at any time. There's open enrollment in December. But when you sign up for Part B, you're faced with a choice. Okay, Part B or plus a supplement or something called Medicare Advantage. I've been on a rant about this for three or four months. And if you go to terrysavage.com, you can read the columns. And just now there's a new story I'm working on. But the main column is the disadvantages of Medicare Advantage. It's cheaper as long as you stay well, but you're in managed care. And if you need tests or if you're in the hospital and you want them to authorize an MRI, it could take days 
for yeah. these authorizations. So you want to have traditional Medicare plus a supplement. Even the least coverage in a supplement may be better for you than a Medicare Advantage plan because at least you will have your choice of doctors and hospitals. So read the column at TerrySavage.com. And if you made a mistake, which brought me up to this current moment, there is currently another open enrollment during which you can switch back out of Medicare Advantage if you realize belatedly the restrictions, and you can find them all again in the column called The Disadvantages of Advantage at TerrySavage.com. If you want to switch back, there's an open enrollment period that ends March 31st where you can switch back and get your supplement back. So if you're confused about all this, post at terrysavage.com. I'm going to write another column. <laughs> Sounds good. Listen, uh, Terry, we are going to take a real quick break. And, um, and then I want to talk to you. Terry also posted something about her recommendations of what we should do for 2024. And we are going to go through those when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. You want to go to terrysavage.com. You can ask Terry a question. You can see her most recent columns. Uh, she is still syndicated nationally. You can find her also in the Chicago Tribune. Um, but it is a one-stop shopping for her books and a link to other financial resources. One of her most recent uh uh, posts was uh, 10 money tips to do now 2024 do them now terry walk us through them well i'm going to start with the first one because when everybody comes you know faces the new year you think about oh no how, how will it be different so my first one i'll get to the things like paying off your credit cards but my first one was figure out how to earn more money in 2024 because with more gas in your tank, more wind in your sails, you can solve most of your problems. Now, everybody's going, what do you mean I'm retired? Or what do you mean I can't ask my boss for a raise? But think about all the things you know, your time and your talents, and decide to put them to better use. I mean, even if it's small amounts, it, it really can add up. Maybe it's a side gig. If, if you're young and you understand technology, um, <laughs> go either volunteer with, uh, with your uh, services or teach a class at a local community center. If everybody pays $10 to show up and learn how to do stuff, you're going to make some money. Or, you know, if you're older and retired but you're still driving, drive for someone else who can't drive. Just think of all the time you spend wasting your time this, this past year and try to figure out how to turn your time into money for this year. Um, that sounds that sounds good. Um, if anybody out there wants to drive me around, I really don't like driving very much. So I'm, I would be a good candidate. Like we could figure out a price per ride. Take the old driving Miss Daisy. That's what I am. Well, you, you don't count, but there are a lot of seniors who need rides to the hospital or need rides to the, I mean, you can contribute your time too, and that would be a worthwhile project. The second part is, okay, let's face up to what you owe. All the bills are just coming in now from all your holiday shopping, and a lot of people use that uh, from those online services where you make four easy payments. Uh, they don't remind you. It doesn't show up on your credit card. 
but the bills are going to be coming due. So just sit down and write them all down, the current, the name of the card, the current balance, the current minimum monthly payment, and write down the interest rate, too. And, and make a list of the services like Klarna or Afterpay that you've used to spread out payments to make it look easy because they are coming up as well. It is the perfect time to face up to it. I have to tell you how many people have posted when I'm like, well, I don't know what to do, but, and I will, I have to, right, wait, how much do you owe? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's a lot, though, okay? <laughs> the next thing is your 401k urine statements and your IRA urine statements are just arrived. Just create a folder. You may have a 401k plan at work, a couple of IRAs that you rolled over before, if you're a senior, by the way, age 73 or older, your required minimum distribution to be taken in 2024 is based on the balance of all your retirement accounts at the end of 2023. But if you're younger and you're just... When you say um, your required minimum distribution, from is that from Social Security? No, no, no. When okay. you have IRAs or four old 401ks, oh, I you see. add them all up. Because once you turn 73, the government says, oh, we want our share of the taxes. So there's a, uh, there's, if you go to terrysavage.com and just put in the word RFD, it'll tell you how to get help calculating your required minimum distribution. Again, that's only when you're 73. You'll have to take out some and it'll be taxed as ordinary income. But for everybody out there who might be listening, who's, who's still working and contributing, the income, the amounts you could contribute this year, are greater. So walk into the HR department. Make sure you're contributing enough to at least get the company match. You know, they take it right out of your paycheck before you see it and spend it. So your 401k at work or your IRA, add to that on a monthly basis or every paycheck at work so that you'll have some money to deal with when you're older. So if I have an IRA and I turn 73, will the Will whoever holds the IRA just start, like, sending me monthly checks? No, no, no. no, no, no. So let's say you have an IRA that came when you rolled over your old 401k from working at XYZ Corporation. But along the way, you work somewhere else, and you rolled over their retirement plan into an IRA, and you have maybe two or three IRAs. Um, I happen to have a bunch of them because... When I was writing about personal finance and on TV every day, I didn't want to seem to have favorites, so I put an account at Fidelity and at Vanguard and at T. Rowe Price and American Century and U.S. Funds. And I, I still have those with different beneficiaries named on each of them. And so I have to total those up at the end of the year, 1 through 73. And then you can go to any one of your custodians, or there's a link in the column at Terry Savage's search in the search box, RMDs, to an online calculator. But it's all based on what your value, total value was at the end of the year. You could take your required distribution amount out of one fund or out of two different custodians. Your custodian will send you a letter reminding you need to do that. You then have to decide, okay, am I going to take it all out in a hunk now in January? I don't need it all. I'll just put it in a money market fund. Am I going to tell them to send me a check for a couple thousand dollars every month if that's how big your RMD is? Just don't forget to tell them to withhold income taxes or you'll wind up at the end of the year owing a lot of taxes. And so they won't do that. If I say, okay, from this IRA, 
I don't know, I want to get a hundred dollars a month. They won't take the taxes out. I have. It's like I'm an independent contractor. I have to take the taxes out. No, 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 no. Just withhold. She gets. We are now revealing everybody that you're just a baby. You don't have to worry about being 73 for a while. But when that happens, and you, you. Let's let's just say there are a lot of people out there who have a lot of money now in their IRAs. So let's say that you have hundred thousand and one and two hundred and fifty nine thousand and you're the rollover you did from your company plan, you have three or four hundred thousand dollars. The calculator will tell you how much must be taken out based on your age and based on the amount of money total you had at your end. Then you could go to one or more of your custodians and say I've calculated my RMD, or they'll calculate it for you if you tell them where you have money out of places, a total amount. And then you could say, okay, it's January. The stock market's at all-time highs. I know that I might have to take out $23,000 sometime during 2024. You know what? It's January. I don't want to take it all out yet. I'd like to take it out monthly. But could you sell some of my stock funds? So I know that I have at least 20000 sitting in a money market fund. And then send me whatever it's going to be, $3,000. Well, $2,000 would be the amount. Send me $2,000 every month. Deposit it right in my checking account. And be sure and withhold taxes so you don't have to do that. Okay, but forget about to somebody to drive that. me around. I think I need to hire a financial <laughs> planner. Okay, the way you do this. Can we not discuss? Oh, I'm yours. Okay. <laughs> There's a place to go. This is a moment of truth, everybody. I, I'm going to assume we're in the afternoon. So a lot of the people who are at home, who are listening, are either at home, maybe you're retired, or self-employed and can put on the radio and so forth, or maybe driving on your car. The moment probably is before you have to start taking these distributions. But the moment you start looking forward to retirement, You want someone to give you advice who is a fiduciary. It's a big word. You're going to hear a lot more about it. It means legally that they put your interests ahead of their own. They're not trying to sell you an annuity. They're not trying to give you a mutual fund that has high fees so they can get a a payment. It's very hard to find those people. And, of course, you can't legislate morality. But you would also like a fee-only fiduciary who does not take commissions for any products that they sell you or advise you on. There is one way to find a true fee-only fiduciary financial planner who has your interests first and who has been carefully vetted by a really sharp gal named Pam Kruger, who I podcast with. It's at TerrySavage.com. Friends talk money. You can watch it, listen to that podcast. Watch it. We're doing video now, too. But um, there's a link on the top of the TerrySavage.com. My web people say, you're putting too much up there. I say, I want everything right up there up front. So there's six boxes in the top right. It says, find your trusted financial planner that will give you a link to WealthRamp.com, which Pam created. It's like Match.com for carefully chosen fee-only fiduciary financial planners. So TerrySavage.com, top right-hand corner, find your trusted financial planner. I get nothing out of it. I just want to say this one last thing. I sell nothing on my website. You can sign up for my free newsletter, which I write whatever I get in the mood to. 
I don't sell the list of people. I don't get, I make zero money off my website to spend money on it. And it's meant to be a resource you could trust. And any links I put up there, I get nothing out of it. It's just my best ideas for you. Cool. Cool. I'm so proud uh, on one of uh, point number seven, check your subscriptions and other monthly payments. I want you to know that without even reading this and your prompting and just a week or two ago, I pulled up my Verizon bill and I pulled up my Xfinity bill to see what the heck I was paying for that I didn't need. Aren't you proud of me? I am very proud of you. As a fact, I just got off the phone disputing my AT&T bill. They didn't give me the credit for the iPhone I turned in. You have to watch that stuff. Um, you know, a lot of people have their bills paid automatically. I travel a lot, so I'm on auto pay on a bunch of those things. But you have this as a perfect time of the year. Yes. Yep. So I did that. Okay, let's good. let's see if good. we can. Good I, I mean, we, we probably saved you thirty two dollars in subscriptions, but we're going to really worry <laughs> about whether you're putting enough away in your IRA. Yeah, right. All right. Uh, you said save money on your car insurance. That's something I don't think a lot of people think about. Well, your car insurance is going up, so I feel like a, you know one of those commercials that they saw all over the football games, bundling, bundling, bundling. But these, this is a time to look at your homeowners and your auto insurance. One of the neat things I found out with auto insurance that I, I put a little, it's all safe, has this thing, you put a little thing in your car, and they can tell if you're a safe driver and you get a discount. I mean, every little bit adds up, whether it's money you don't pay and interest charges by paying down your credit cards or savings that you can make on purchases. It's, I personally think, that we could be in for a very interesting year ahead. That's a column I've just finished writing this morning. You know, the stock market's at all-time highs. Unemployment remains low. The Fed is cutting interest rates. The economy is strong with GDP numbers. Consumer confidence just took a sharp jump upward. We're not talking politics. I'm just giving the economic facts. And yet, and yet, there's some warning signs. So, uh, read the Tribune next Sunday or either go to TerrySavage.com next Sunday and the new column will be posted. I think this is not the time to take on debt. This is not the time to be so over-relaxed about your finances. This is the time to take a look at what you own and what you owe and be on top of it. And in fact, there's another column I wrote. But I, there, there's some great uh, apps that you could put on your phone. Uh, that you can use to track your spending and your payments. And so I think January is the time to do all of this. And if I know everybody's rolling their eyes going, wait, what did, what did you want me to do? I <laughs> wanted you to know what you owe and know what you own. Make better use of your time in the year ahead. Save more money by just having it taken out before you see it and spend it. Increase that 401k or 403b contribution or open an IRA. Take a look. If you're older, we're at all-time highs in the stock market. Here's a final thought. You know, God, you and I have known each other forever. We've seen bull markets. We've seen bear markets. We've seen good times and scary times. And we've seen recessions and we've seen, oh, financial crises. The stock market today is at all-time highs. And that's just proof of two different things. If you're younger, you don't have to be a genius. Just invest in that standard and poor 500 stock index fund that's in your 401k. Put the money in. Don't ever chicken out when you're 
you know, the market goes down, I'm not going to do that. No, just keep doing it because through all the ups and downs, you will make money. It's never been a 20-year losing period in the American markets, but with dividends reinvested. But if you are now at the stage where you're looking forward to withdrawing, how much do I have to take out? I need a financial planner. I need to think about withdrawing. Then this year, you've had huge profits. The S&P 500 was up like 40%. So maybe want to move some to some safer alternatives like chicken, you know, money market funds if they're in your 401k. As usual, I've gotten too into this conversation and uh, we are up against breaking for news. I just want to say uh, that article, Top 10 Money Tips, ends with a link to a personal financial organizer, which I have downloaded. It's uh, it's the thing I've needed and didn't realize. I'm always one of those people. What? What account? What number? I don't know. Those papers are here somewhere. Uh, One stop shopping. Terry, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. I need to see you soon. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. We have to talk more money. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Take care. We're going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with David Hochberg after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. And we are welcoming back the lovely and talented David Hochberg. Happy New Year, David. Happy New Year, Joan. I think it's past the uh, date that we could officially say that, but I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll take that no. salutation anyway. Why? Why is it past? Is it not still the New I Year? Heard. Have we not s- exchanged these greetings yet? I plan to keep doing this. Okay. I just I saw something online that after 15 days, it, uh, it gets a little weird. But your show, your dime, your dance floor, <laughs> sister, I'll take whatever you want to do. Yes. Well, whoever wrote that doesn't understand that the entirety of January, we celebrate the new year and the entirety of 2024, we celebrate my birthday. Once you pass the age of 60, birthdays celebrations get longer. Sometimes they're a few weeks. Sometimes they're a few months. Sometimes they're the entire year. I will write up these rules for you so you understand um, what the world is going to look like as you get older. Thank you. I appreciate that. I need as much help as I could get. <laughs> I, I know, David. I know. Um, so I know it's been a tough it's been a tough time lately for people in your business. Are things looking a little better? Yeah, the forty uh, percent of the mortgage professionals uh, that were licensed last year didn't renew their license on January first. So the reason that's important is because if you did a loan with somebody. Uh, that that lender might not might not longer might no longer be in business, and their company might no longer be in business. We just had another casualty last week. Draper and Kramer Mortgage uh, announced that they were going out, so they're falling like flies here, one after the other. And you know, there's not a lot of new blood coming in, and a lot of the banks, especially in the the, uh, the regional banks, have shuttered their uh, mortgage uh, divisions altogether. I heard Associated Bank huge regional bank here in the Midwest based out of uh, Milwaukee got out of the construction loan business. So, and that was one of their huge bread and butter. So yeah, really? the, the mortgage, yeah, yeah. So, and they, and they were dominant in that, in that, in that field. So they had a huge position and uh, yeah, so everything's changing. Uh, we're still here. We're still in business. And the reason I'm saying that is because uh, all indications from the experts we're speaking with is that we're going to see two major rate drops on, on the mortgage side 
during this year. We, you know, we saw a unbelievable ramp up started at, at this time last year. Uh, I'm sorry, this time in 2022, right around this time in 2022, and we, and it, it just stopped going up in October of last year. It was an unbelievable. We, we went from three, Joan. We went from the low threes in January of 2022 to the low eights in October of 2023. Uh, it was a runaway freight train, like five points on the 30-year fixed loan. And then we saw a little bit of relief. Um, we, we, we saw the 10-year note, which, which, which governs the 30-year fixed loan, go down from 5.2 all the way down to 3.8. So we saw a point and a half drop um, in interest rates Towards the end of last year, and then in the pre in the past three to three three weeks, we've seen interest rates tick back up. When the ten year is back over four, so long and the short of it is this: um, we've been contacting everybody who took out a loan with us uh, from June of 2022. Okay, so June of 2022, all the way through the end of last year, because everybody that took out a 30 year fixed mortgage from June 2022. Until today, uh, until the end of last year, it, it, their rate starts with a seven. Okay, it's just a fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, we anticipate rates to dip into the sixes. We've already called all of our borrowers uh, that we close loans for from June of 2022 through the end of the year and put them on notice, started collecting documents, and started preparing them to take advantage of when the rates drop. Because we see it every single day, right? I mean, we're at the at the tip of the spear here. And you guys, when when you announce, oh, yeah, you know, mortgage rates have decreased or mortgage rates have gone up, that information is two weeks old. Okay, so when, when you know, breaking news for listeners, when, when you hear that, you know, the, uh, the average mortgage rates have dropped, yeah, that was, you're, you're hearing two-week-old news. So what we're doing is we've got I've got personally 15 of my borrowers lined up ready to go applications out titles ordered appraisals are done documents have been collected waiting for the rates to dip we're just floating the rate right now when we hit a certain point where we can cover the closing costs we're going to lock the rate close it quickly and then get into position because we fully anticipate rates to drop before the election at the at the end of the year as well so if you if you did a loan, your lender might not be in business anymore. Do you think the rates are going to drop because of political pressure? Or, I mean, the last time the Fed got together, they said, um, you know, we're not doing a rate hike. And it's possible, you know, we've got things where they, they should be. So maybe next time around, there'll be a decrease. Or do you think it's because they've got the economy where they want it? Or because an election is coming and it always looks good. Well, I here are a couple of factors, right? The, the, the political aspect of it is, is totally on the sidelines. Because if there are any political games going on, Biden went to let it run up as high as he did, as it did in the past year and a half. Okay, almost two years. So everybody's like, oh, everybody's messing with it. Here's what I think, right? Well, here's what I know: inflation has been put in check. Right. We're starting to see prices coming down. We've seen gas prices coming down. They spiked up because of all the Mr. Goss going on with the uh, with the hoodies and all that stuff. It's a little crazy trying to get oil out of the Middle East right now. OK, but so that's ticked it up a little bit. But prices for all your other stuff have has been coming down. And inflation has been 
decreasing. The challenge is the reason the numbers went up recently is because we got the December uh, numbers in January and we saw we saw consumer spending shot up in December. Well, it always shoots up in December because it, it's holiday time and people can't control themselves, right? So we've got a bunch <laughs> of numbers coming out. At, at the end of this week, student loans has put a major damper on a ton of consumers' spending, okay? And what's happening behind the scenes is the Biden administration is basically expunging student loan debt for those that qualify, which which they should be doing anyway, okay? Not everybody's going to get free student loans. That was a little bit ridiculous, but, but, but the targeted uh, action that they're doing right now makes all the sense in the world. So things are coming down. Things are getting better. And what's happening is you're, you're, you're going to start to see better numbers. And a, a lot of come. And this is going to sound weird, right? Unemployment numbers. When unemployment numbers go up, that's good for interest rates. And you've seen this past week a lot of huge companies, Wayfair on Friday, Citibank the prior week, Google, um, Amazon, all of those companies were laying people off. Well, what does that do? That puts pressure on the suppliers of those companies. They're laying people off for a reason because the sales aren't there to support having all of those employees working at those companies. So then all of those companies then don't need as many employees and then they don't need as many products. And then it's just the downline domino effect, which will cool the economy down, which would be great, which drops interest rates. Unfortunately, people are going to lose their jobs because the unemployment numbers are, are going to have to go up in order for the interest rates to come down. It does seem it does seem counterintuitive, um, but I guess right. I understand. I guess I followed you through that little bit of uh, of reasoning there. Um, so uh, I'm wondering. We probably should take a break, but I do want to talk to you about when you say interest rates start to come down. I want to talk about how much and how fast. I'm talking yeah, to David Hopper. Sure. We're going to continue our talk right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are talking with David Hochberg, uh, who is our, our very reliable mortgage broker. And uh, we are talking about interest rates, which, as you well know, have been going up and up and up and up and up. But uh, David thinks that maybe they're going to head uh, very soon in a different direction. Uh, David, talk about that if you would. Yeah, I mean, we're currently in the high sixes, low sevens. In October, we were in the high sevens, low eights. So, so we've already seen a, a nice correction in the marketplace. What um, we, what's happened behind the scenes? What listeners haven't been uh, following is that I, I'm going to try to make this as, as 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 simplistic as I can. So back back for the prior 21 years, I, I, w- I was doing mortgages, right? I got in in August of 2000. Up until um, 20, t- January of 2022, you used to be able to look at the 10-year note, and they had two points on there, 200 basis points, which is two points a, uh, a, on the interest rate, and that's where the 30-year fixed was at, okay? And that's as simple as I could get it. So, uh, for example, I, I think the 10-year today was at 4.1, let's say. You'd have rates at 6.1. Right. But mm-hmm. what these banks have done, OK, what these lenders have done during the past, it, it, it's like inflation. You know, your, your bag of chips costs the same, but instead of getting 12 ounces of chips, you're only getting eight ounces of chips. 
Okay, so you think you're paying the same, but you're getting a quarter less, right? So what mm-hmm. these bankers have done is instead of charge 200 basis points on top of the 10-year note, they charge 300, right? So they added an extra point. That's why rates are so high. So I think what's going to happen is as everything gets back into equilibrium, because the past two years on the mortgage side has been bat poop crazy, and that's the official term, okay? It's just <laughs> been an absolute runaway jailbreak, and rates have just been crazy. All right. If you look at January 2022, we were at the beginning, we were at three something, low threes. By the end of January, we were already in the fours. Okay. It, and it's been that quick. In the 23 and a half years I've been doing this, I've never seen a market change that quick over a two year period of time. All right. So, so that being said, I think that the, the 300 basis points that they, that extra 100 basis points, that extra point on the interest rate that they added will slide away. I also think that rates will come back into the fives. And I think things will start to stabilize. When, and when the market stabilizes, you'll have something which we haven't had in a very long period of time be reintroduced in the marketplace, something called an adjustable rate mortgage. Okay, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with adjustable rate mortgages. And all you do-gooders out there and all you, and all you people that think arms are bad, stay in your lane. They're phenomenal products when used effectively for the right borrowers. Right? I had one. So I, I had a 15-year arm once upon a time, and it, it was great. Those are great. I, you know, if a seven-year arm, if you plan here, I got a, I got a cop right now in a suburban uh, police uh, district, right? He's a commander. He's going to retire within the next three and a half years. Bought a home out 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 the western suburbs. I got him in at like six point nine nine seven seven percent. I'm like, hey, here's what we're doing. You know, the same spiel I did to everybody. He's like, dude, you've been doing my loan for fifteen years. Whatever you think's right, get it ready, go. And by the way, if I could get into a five year arm, I'm retiring in forty months, and I'm done. And uh, you know, the the house is going on the market on the forty first month, and I'm going to be out. So if you could find me a five or a seven year arm. Put me in that if I could save an extra half a point. Okay, so that's what's happening, right? So when the adjustable rate mortgages come back into vogue, that's when you'll start seeing houses be freed up, okay? Because 40% of Americans own their own home. Uh, That was a study released at the end of last year, okay? 70% of Americans that own their homes that have a mortgage have got a rate under 5, has a rate under 5%. Okay, 50% of those have a rate under 4%, and 25% of those homeowners have a rate under 3%. Okay, so if you're sitting in a home with a mortgage in the twos and the threes and the fours, you're not going to sell your home and go into a rate in the eights. Okay, but you'll sell your home if it's in the twos and the threes and the fours and take all that money you've made over the past four years just due to the crazy appreciation with COVID and the shortness of inventory and and nobody's moving because the rates are locked in. Right. You'll you'll put your house on the market, which will free up inventory and and you'll take all that added equity that you've picked up through the unbelievable appreciation. This market as a whole has experienced and maybe go into a seven or a 10 year arm. Nothing wrong with those loans. Nothing wrong with those loans at all. So that's what I predict is going to happen. Right. You'll start seeing a loosening of the a, a, um, a, a continued decrease in the 30-year fixed loan, that's why credit scores are so important, hugely important. And another thing for your listeners, any I think the cutoff in this area is about $84,000. If you make $84,000, 
at a, um, and it could be one person in the house if you qualify for a mortgage, $84,000 or less, you get unbelievably low rates. It's huge. The government came out with the program, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, have a program. Uh, the average median income is under $84,000. They want you to benefit with an unbelievable loan pro- uh, process. So if you're a homeowner out there with the high interest rates with with uh, an income under $84,000, you got to call me to see if we can lower your rate. or get Does you it a have to be to- income like from working for a corporation? Can it be can it be income from, say, Social Security or a retirement plan? Yes. Yes. Total income has to be under under eighty four thousand dollars. I'll get you the exact amount in a commercial. And is that I'm for write, one person? Is it is it is it nope. a different number nope. for a married couple? Total household income can't exceed eighty four grand. OK. Yeah. So but but again, if one person makes eighty four and the other person makes thirty and we can get the loan done on the. On the borrower that's making the 84, they still qualify for the program. We we don't have to use the income of both borrowers as long as the borrower qualifies. And here's the tough part in Illinois with our ridiculously high real estate taxes. All you elected officials listening, right? You're making it more difficult for uh, Chicagoans and this and 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 everybody within the Chicago listening area to take advantage of these programs because of the real estate taxes, right? If we had lower real estate taxes, those with higher mortgage loan amounts would be able to take care, uh, uh, take advantage of these um, of this of this unbelievable program that's available through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And you well, said, shout out to my elected officials. <laughs> Going back to some of your earlier remarks, this segment, you said that you think your gut tells you that this year the rates could drop down to the fives. Um, what do yeah. you see as a time frame for that? What does your gut tell you on I, that? I think, yeah, no, I, I think what you'll see is a dip by by April. You know, the first dip, and I think as as inflation gets in into check and and people continue to stop spending money on things they don't need with money they don't have. <laughs> um, and that's a fact, right? I mean, they, you know, we've got 55 million Americans out there who now carry credit card balances uh, on their credit, carry balances on the credit card for more than 12 months. That's scary as hell. Okay. And that's up 40% from the year before and, uh, 49% of American or 53% of Americans, I believe the number is, uh, don't have $500 in their, you know, savings account to cover, uh, a random emergency expense, you know, an, an, an unforeseen emergency. So we as a country are leveraged up to our eyeballs. And what's happening, talking with friends who run regional banks here within the Chicagoland area last week, they're like, business lending is getting tighter. Okay, so the money that the businesses are going to be borrowing, you're going to have to have a lot more skin in the game. And we've got a a pending commercial real estate crash coming with all of the... Um, with all of the buildings downtown being empty and they're predicting up to a 40% decrease in commercial real estate values, especially within the downtown office market. So you might not think that's going to impact you um, in Cook County because you don't own a building, but let me tell you something. If those, when those commercial real estate properties decrease in value, okay. And those, and those buildings are not getting leases signed 
with companies not needing four floors. They only need one floor. Okay, and those companies that only needed a half a floor don't need any floor because all their workers are working from home. That's going to put a huge pressure on the residential real estate side of things. And residential real estate taxes are going to continue to go up, which is going to make home ownership here within the Cook County uh, area that much more expensive. So, yeah, I, I love to hear what the elected officials are doing, you know, doing to help that out because I haven't heard anything. So just beware, that's coming. I still am not quite sure I follow. Uh, you're just, if, let me see if I can summarize. The fact that the commercial real estate is in a, a really bad shape. I mean, even with Lori Lightfoot as mayor, I mean, she was talking about going down to the financial district and, you know, repurposing some of those buildings, you know, build a food court here, you know, build a couple of condo buildings, you know, convert to condo buildings there. Um, clearly, you know, we know that office buildings um, are not going to be occupied the way they were before the pandemic. And that what you're saying is that sort of trouble, that sort of financial trouble influences other areas of uh, of lending and finance. Did I get that right? Yeah, I'll, t- I'll try to keep it simple for you. Right. Let's say you got a ten million dollar building. Right. And, and the taxes on the ten million dollar building are based upon a valuation of ten million dollars. Okay, so real estate taxes are coming in to the county and the county spending and and investing and dividing up those funds from that commercial property that that's worth ten million dollars. Right now, that commercial building is most likely due to all the experts is going to be worth six million dollars. Okay, so now you're only going to get they're going to be. Okay, so now they're going to go and put in a request to have their real estate tax bill lowered because their valuation is no longer 10. It's only at six because 40 percent of the of the tenants in there are gone. Okay, so so now you've got 40 percent less real estate taxes coming in from the commercial district. Right. That Mm -hmm. is a big problem for Cook County. That is a big problem for the city of Chicago. Okay, and yes, you could repurpose those buildings. Okay, you could repurpose any building. Okay, the challenge that you have with an office building, turning an office building into a residential building, is that in any type of major office building, you typically have your elevators and you've got your bank of toilets, one for men and one for women, right? Okay, so so you've got your stacks for the for the um, for the toilets in one centralized area. Okay, and you might have a private bathroom in, in, in one of the, you know, you know, executive suites. Well, if you blow that building out and turn it from 100 percent commercial, okay, office building into 100 percent residential, you now have to run electric all over the place. You got to run toilets all over. You got to run sewer. You got to run plumbing. You got to run electrical up and down all the different columns and redirect all of the different plumbing and, and services that you need because not everybody's going to go into a community toilet in the middle of the uh, hallway. Okay. Everybody's going to want their own bathrooms and their own showers in their okay, own Okay, We'll units. set the buildings up as, as bed and breakfasts because people who stay at bed and breakfast go down the hall to use the toilet. <laughs> I'm being sure, silly, of course. Sure. Um, David, we need to take a break. We're at the bottom of the hour. David Hochberg and I will be right back. And by the way, you can always call in if you have a question for David. We always will take those or text me, 773-763-9278. We'll be back right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 
And I'm joined by David Hochberg, who is uh, talking to us about what we can look forward to or perhaps not uh, in 2024. Uh, David, I wanted to talk to you. You mentioned um, when you were talking about, I don't know whether it was Freddie Mae, Fannie Mae, about um, how much income you make. I know that for when you apply for a loan, your credit score is also important. Would you talk about your uh, somebody's credit score and how they can enhance their credit? Sure. So what we're offering, and, and, and I recorded a commercial just, uh, last week, and you'll be hearing it coming up. Um, credit scores are the most – here, there are three things. Three, three pillars of any type of mortgage transaction. It's your credit scores, it's your income, and it's your assets. Assets meaning um, stocks, bonds, retirement, how much money you're putting down for down payment. Those are the three major pillars of any foundation to any type of real estate transaction purchase or, or refinance, okay? The credit score is and will always be the number one factor in determining the rate because it, it is the only window into the borrower's ability to repay a debt. That's it. Okay. It doesn't hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Sorry. I got my German. That's okay. Dogs are allowed on this radio at, show at the, um, at the, at the post, at the postal lady again. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, so, um, so the credit scores are always going to be important because they're again, they're the only forecast that the lender has to determine what your past payment history has been, right? Into your future payment history. So if you have a bad payment history, that only shows, it means you're going to have a bad credit score. Okay, so I talked to a guy last week. He's, uh, you know, we ran his credit. He was a 560, 530, and a 570. He's like, that's BS. I ran my credit. I got these credit cards, and I've got these scoreboards. And it shows I'm in the 600s. I'm like, okay, well, that's a recreational credit score. I go, mine is an industrial strength credit score when I pull it, right? Okay. When you so, said three credit scores, are you talking about like uh, Equifax, uh, TransUnion, or something like union. that? The, the, yeah, yeah, the big companies? Equifax, yes, ma'am. Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. Those are the three major credit agencies that report and, and, and give you scores. Okay. So this guy had a secured card with, I don't, it could be, I think it was credit one and another one. And, and he sent me a picture. I said, well, that's great. Here's what my scores are. Here's from a credit score that a credit report that's actually going to be used to determine your rate and your ability to buy a home, not your, not your uh, dashboard that your credit card company gave you. So long and the short of it's this. Guy made $78,000 a year, okay, plenty of income. Challenge with this guy was he had 16 late credit card payments in the past 12 months. So he's like, well, you know, I, I make my credit card payments. I go, yeah, late. I go, listen, it's very simple, right? Pay your credit cards off every Friday or just send in something every Friday if you can't pay them off. And then on top of that, he had seven different collections from $24 up to $1,100, okay? So I Again, said, just not paying attention? It just, just for a variety of reasons, right? It, he, he blew off a payment, 
and and it went to collection. There was a doctor bill he didn't know about. He thought the insurance would take cover, care of it. It went to collection. He had some other bill with a phone company that he co-signed for his kid. The kid blew it off. He didn't know anything about it. Got sent to collection. I said, okay, listen, all great reasons. You've got good excuses. Doesn't matter. It's sitting on your credit score, on your credit report, like an elephant, okay? So what you got to do is is this. It's very simple. If you do it over a 12-month period of time, your credit scores will go from the 560s to the 660s, maybe into the 680s, maybe into the 700s. Pay your credit cards off. Send something in every Friday so you're never late. You eliminate that ability to have a late charge on your credit report if you pay it off every Friday or pay down the credit every Friday to send something in. Then after you, we're not, it was like three to $500, okay? And the guy makes decent money, and he's like, yeah, I know I keep forgetting. I'm like, here's how you don't forget. It's Friday, right? Send something in on Friday. He's like, I got it. I said, the other thing that you do is this. Just go after one of those collections every single month or every single quarter when you've got the money and just settle them up. That's it. Settle them up. He had a total of $3,500 on seven different collections. Okay? I'm like, just start one at a time. Right? One was as low as $25 that he didn't know about. I'm like, listen, you could call him up and negotiate down to to, to $15 or $20. Just send him the $25. Cross it off as a win and move on to the next one, right? And then when you build up enough money, the next one was like $125. Like, if you don't have the 125 just do Monty Hall, let's make a deal. Negotiate your best deal you can with them. Make sure you've got the money in your, in your checking account because they're going to ask you for your ABA number and your routing number, and they're going to suck the money out right away. So make sure you got the money there. Make sure you negotiate the best deal. And if you eliminate one, or, one of these collections a month or a quarter, and you go a full year's with paying every single credit card down or off on Friday, your credit scores will bounce from the mid-500s up into the 600s. That's what I'm offering to your listeners. The first 10 listeners, I've got 10 loan officers on my team. They're all capable. I train them all to do this. But the first 10 listeners that want to work with me hand-in-hand, Joan, I will help, that want to buy a home, and are dedicated. Don't call me, then go into witness protection plan, okay? Because <laughs> I'm not chasing after you. If you got turned down for a mortgage because of your credit, or you're embarrassed to apply for a mortgage because of your credit, or you don't think you could own a house because of your credit, I will work with the first 10 listeners that call me, 855-56-DAVID, or go to my website, 56david.com, and put in an inquiry. I'll call you back today, Okay. If you want to buy a home and you want to dedicate yourself to enhancing your credit, I will help you enhance your credit. I can't help them with their income, Joan. I can't help them with their down payments, but I will remove the barrier that's been blocking their ability to just apply, which is their credit score. So if you're interested, I'd like to throw that out there. Start the year off with a bang and offer your listeners complimentary free handholding. If it takes three, six, nine, 12 months, two years, whatever it takes. I'll put you on a glide path. I'll call you up every single month, check in, make sure you're doing what you need to be doing. But it's up to you to get from point A to point B. I'll give you the roadmap. Um, Talking about credit scores, somebody just texted in, will a couple of medical bills in collections worsen my credit score? Well, any type of collection is is a hit, right? So it, 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 it wouldn't prohibit 
up to a certain level, it won't prohibit the borrower from getting a loan, right? But any type of collection on your credit report is a negative mark on your scores. Okay, so what I recommend is two different ways to get collections off. If you've got the money and you're buying something within the next three to six months and your scores are so low and you want to get them up high quick, and we've got something called a rescore program on our program where we could say if you pay this off in full, your scores will go up this many points. If you get it deleted, it'll go up this many points. And if you negotiate a settlement, it'll go up this many points. Right. So if your listeners are going to be not doing anything for at least a year, my my recommendation is try to negotiate the best deal you can get on a you settlement. You've said that a couple of times now, but what do you do? You just call up the number and say, hey, you say I owe you five hundred dollars, but oh, would you take a hundred? I mean, how, yeah. how do you do yeah. something like that? Exactly what you said. You pick up the phone, you dial the number and you're like, hey, you have to understand here. Here's the game that the collection companies play. Okay, the collection companies are buying those debts for penny on the dollar. Okay, so Joan came to me for a service, right? You wanted to get your teeth cleaned, and I charged you a thousand dollars to get your teeth cleaned because you got messed up teeth, and it took four hours to clean your teeth, right? I billed you a thousand bucks. You didn't pay me. Okay, I then send your 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 bill that thousand dollars to a collection company who's willing to give me a hundred dollars i'm a company i don't got time to chase after you anymore i sent you five five different letters and five different phone calls i'm moving on i got a company abc collection just for this example if there's an abc collection out there i apologize for using the name of your company (laughs) abc collection company for a hundred dollars so i get a hundred dollars from them and i sell your collection to them your thousand dollar collection for a hundred bucks Okay, so they're not buying it for a thousand bucks. They're buying it for pennies on the dollar. So their job is to go out and get buy debt from companies for as cheap as they can get it and then go blast the consumer and get as much as they can get. So it is let's make a deal with these collection companies. Right. And, you know, if you go into them hard and you're a jerk or you're a jackass, they're going to dig in and you're not going to get a good a, a good settlement. If you go in there and you tell them what happened, hey, my teeth started falling out of my head. I lost my job. I got hit by a bus. I got dragged four miles behind the bus. I couldn't work. And and I'm finally back on my feet. I'm trying to get my credit reestablished. Will you work with me here? They'll come with a number. You come with a number. And then you settle up. That's it. Now, if you have to buy a home or you have to do something quick and you got to get something eliminated, there's something called pay and delete. Right. You could pay, ask them, hey, if I pay the full boat on this, will you remove this completely from my report? And some of them will say yes. Some of them will say no. But you know what? You can't fall off the floor. So you get the number, which I'll give you, and you call up, you find out what the collection's for. If the, the medical stuff, it's all protected by HIPAA. All that we get on the, on, the, on the credit report is the name of the collection company, the amount, and the dates. And it says medical. That's it. It doesn't say anything else. You've got to call up the collection company, verify it's you through Social Security numbers and, and addresses and whatever, and negotiate the best deal that you could get. And what was it you said to ask them if they would remove, do what kind of a removal? Pay and delete. Pay right? and so, delete. So we, if I pay the debt off in full, will you delete it from my record? You got you got a fifty fifty shot. 
Because right? that Most means the they would go to the credit work. agencies and what, withdraw the information? Yeah. Delete, the, delete the collection altogether. And why not? They got all their money. Well, if right? you and if you negotiate a settlement with them and pay them, will they at least call the credit agents and, and say, "Oh, by the way, they paid"? Does that get transcribed? Yeah, no, no. Absolutely, they will say they will report to the credit agencies what type of tr- transaction or settlement you came up with, right? Paid as settled, right? Settled agreement. So instead of it being an open collection, it's a closed collection. It's like having a third degree burn. Right. Every day after a third degree burn that you treat that burn, that burn gets better. Right. And it becomes less of a problem. That's what you're doing with your credit. You're taking small bite sized steps, small steps. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Right. You're taking (laughs) small steps in order to get yourself into a position of strength and your credit better. Okay, doing nothing and sticking your head in the sand or in the snow now, I could use that analogy as I look out my door, you know, it's, it, it doesn't work, right? If you want to buy a home, if you were turned down for a mortgage and your mortgage professional three to the side of the road, like, you know, like a used bag of fast food because, because they couldn't, you know, get anything out of you and weren't willing to work with you, I'll work with you, get you into a position to buy a home. It's that simple. Or if you are too embarrassed to apply for a mortgage because you think your credit is so challenged that you don't even want to embarrass yourself. Fine. Great. You know what? I've seen everything. Okay. It's like going to your proctologist, right? Drop your pants, <laughs> bend over and let me see it. I've seen everything. Okay. <laughs> if you want me to do a colonoscopy on your credit, right. And get you into a position to buy a home, to strengthen your credit. So you can be in a position credit wise to buy a home. I'll be. I'll help out the first ten eight five 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 six three two eight four three, or send me an email, David at five six david dot com. You got to go to break. It's quarter of the hour. <laughs> thank you, thank you, dear. Um, we're going to be back with more listener questions for David Hochberg when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT eight twenty. I am joined by the lovely David Hochberg. People have been texting in questions for him. Okay, David, next question. Uh, this person says, uh, Sarah says she has a very specialized question about converting a business loan over 8% to a personal home loan. Um, how is that possible? Sarah, Sarah is her name? Is right? Sarah, Sarah, yes. Okay, if, if Sarah has enough equity in her home to be able to pull out the equity and convert the her home's equity to extinguish her business loan, and she has the equity, the income, and the uh, credit score uh, to pull it off, yeah, absolutely. It's, a, it's called a cash-out refinance. You essentially do a cash-out refinance out of the equity uh, of Sarah's current home, uh, Sarah will get a check at the closing, or we can pay the debt off at the closing if, if Sarah likes, if she qualifies, right? She has to qualify with income, credit, and the equity in her home. So if she has enough equity in her home, absolutely, she can so you don't uh, just use her home equity. to whoever issued you your business loan and sign some paperwork no. and transfer it to a personal loan. You would refinance no, no, no. your house, take uh, equity out, and then just pay off the business loan. Is that what I understand you have just said? Correct. Okay. Correct. You could either refinance or take out a home equity line of credit or a home equity loan. If her credit uh, 
scores are good enough and there's equity there, depending upon her situation, that's what we do. And and here's another uh, fallacy I, I want to clear up. You don't have to go, if you want to get a home equity line of credit or home equity loan, you don't have to go to the bank who's holding your first mortgage. For example, Chase Manhattan Bank or Wells Fargo, right? If you have a Chase or Wells first loan in first in first position that they hold your mortgage, you don't you can't go back to Chase or Wells Fargo because they no longer offer home equity products unless you're their private banker and got millions of dollars in their banks. They don't offer line of credit to the general public, only to their private banking. So you do not have to go to the bank that has got your first mortgage to get a home equity product. That I just wanted to throw that out there while we're talking about it. Okay. Okay. Um, I jotted this down when you were talking about the previous man with the bad credit and how you were going to help him get his credit um, redone. And you said he showed you that he had a secured credit card. What is, is that just a credit card? What is a secured credit card? Is it special? No, it's a great it, it's a great tool. Um, we started it up with a partnership with King County Teachers Credit Union. Secured oh, that's credit like cards, the ones you it, said that help kids get their first credit card too. Right, kids kids or adults who have credit challenge, uh, adults who went through a divorce and the spouse threw a couple of torpedoes in the bow on the way out. Somebody coming out of a bankruptcy, come you know, somebody coming out of a business that that went bad and their credit is horrible and they need to be reestablished. So a secured credit card, to answer your question is, or the texter's question is, you you put up uh, $500, okay? In, in my case, here's what a Team Hockberg secured credit card is. You contact, I'll, I'll hook you up with King County Teachers Credit Union. Um, you put up $500, wait a couple of weeks, they give you a credit card that reports to all three major credit bureaus, TransUnion, Equifax, Experian. Um, you have 500 live live rounds on there. there there's $500 worth of availability. So if you go uh, go get a sandwich and it's $12, right? You you give them your credit card, they swipe it, they, uh, they take $12 out. You go through a tank of gas in your car, it costs you $40 to $100, depending upon how much gas you got to put in your car and the type of gas, right? You take the credit card, you swipe it, and they and they take the money out of that. Now, what I recommend with the secured credit cards. Like I recommended uh, with my friend with the 550 credit scores, is pay it off every single week. So that way, he, he's got secure credit cards that he's paying late. I mean, how irresponsible can you be on that? I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Just just send him something every Friday. So so you can't be late. He's like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a knucklehead. I'm like, well, you're another word that I can't say on the radio, but I'm just like, let's get it together here. Right? Why wouldn't so you suggest for somebody card. like that that they set up automatic debit? If he, if his, if truly, if remembering to do it and to do it on time is part of the problem, you know, and great, you could pay it off every week to build your credit score back up, but at least don't screw it up by forgetting to pay it all together. W- wouldn't 100%. an auto pay thing be good for somebody like that? I, I, I'm assuming this guy has got money in his account which I can't assume because he hasn't been able to make his credit cards on time, right? So if I just if I help him build him into, hey, every Friday, go online and make the payment, right? If I could drill Friday into their heads, okay, it, it eliminates that. And then the next step would be to do what you just said, set it up as, as an auto pay. Unfortunately, the guy's self-employed, cash is sporadic, right? Some weeks he's got money, some weeks he has a lot of money, some weeks he doesn't have a lot of money. So instead of making a payment every week, right, I want to make sure he's got money in his account 
So it's baby steps, right? But that's 100% right. Do an auto pay if you have the money to set it up to pay it. I just want, you know, slow steps here, baby steps. Just send in a payment every single Friday to at least pay down what you use or what you charged the previous week. And then that way, the, all the late start going away because they're getting money, which is more than the minimum payment for the for the month. And then they're not late. And then they're starting to chip away at the iceberg with with the outstanding debt as well. I just um, we I just, you know, I'm not going to read you all these texts because a lot of these texts are just talking about how much people like you. They like when you're on the air. They think you're a great guy. Um, one guy said that he's using your advice to help his daughter right now. You don't. You don't need that. You don't need that kind of. I don't um, need any of that. You don't, don't need that kind of no. positivity, do you? No, no. Give me the negative ones. Hey, I want the people <laughs> that hate me and that think I'm a jerk. Um, just off the, uh, real quick, I know that um, there was a uh, Paul Vallis did an op-ed in the Chicago Tribune recently about the real estate transfer tax. Um, yeah. Does that affect any of what we're talking about here? Well, sure. Well, it's going to put further pressure, downward pressure. You see, here's what you have to worry about. They bill it as a millionaire's tax. Okay. And in all due respect to Mayor Johnson, who's completely over skis on this one. All right. He has no idea what he's talking about. All right. You've got a transfer tax system that works perfectly fine and has worked perfectly fine for decades. Okay, he wants to come in and put a a million, a quote unquote millionaire's tax on on, on properties above a million dollars. Well, what's that going to do? It's going to put further downward pressure on those properties. And listen, not all millionaires own million dollar properties. Okay, you can have some a property in the family, a six unit or seven unit property that could be worth two million dollars, three million dollars. This mayor is going into your pocket to take money out. Okay, there's better ways to do it. And here's another thing. It's under the guise of helping the homeless, which God knows the homeless people in the city of Chicago need as much help as as we can get. This guy's got millions of dollars sitting from the federal government that he's not spending. So here's something from Mayor Johnson. Why don't you invest the money that you've got from the federal government? Show the people of Chicago that the money that you have is being invested wisely and is really helping the poor people living on the streets of Chicago before you go and blow up a real estate transfer tax system that's working perfectly fine. Use the money you're currently getting. Effectively show that the programs that you have in place are working before you tax building owners in the city of Chicago. I just talked, I got a, I own a couple of commercial real estate properties. I talked to my partners. I'm like, sell these damn things ASAP. I'm getting out of the city of Chicago before this tax goes into play. Cause I don't want to have anything to do with this mayor. Okay. I don't, he doesn't know what he's doing. And, and you know, with this real estate tax thing, I feel horrible for the homeless people in the city of Chicago, you go on the on the on the red lines, the blue lines, all of that stuff. I, I took a train to, from downtown Chicago to O'Hare. I had four homeless people sleeping on the train. I had a guy on the blue line, which isn't the smoothest track in the world, go in between trains to relieve himself. Okay, urinating in between cars. This guy could have fallen off and got split in half, you know, with the cars. We've got a huge problem. 
doing anything with the transfer tax. Show the people of Chicago that you can invest the money that you currently have that you're not using effectively before you start raising taxes. You got me all fired up on that one because I think what he's doing is wrong. Okay. God. You know, we were doing so well the last few times. I've kept your blood pressure down. I guess I just... I was I just it was a bridge too far and I and I apologize. Uh, just remember all those kind words. You're a great guy. They love to hear you. They think you're a real Chicago guy. You've helped them. You've helped their kids. Okay, so just take some in through the nose and through the I'm mouth. Fine. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. When when you start taxing commercial real estate buildings. Okay, and 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 here, if somebody owns a two-unit building, okay, I, I'll give you a perfect example. One of my best friends' mom lives in River North, in, in a four-unit building. Okay, she bought it in like 1980 or 1979 for $285,000. We we just got it appraised; it was like 1.5 million dollars. You're going to tag this 80-year-old lady when she goes to sell her home because and you're plopping her into a the, the rich people category just because the appreciation in a home that she's lived in for 40 years you're going to now dip into her into her pocketbook and and extract money from her an 80 year old young lady who needs that money to survive no it doesn't make any sense and she's not rich and all because she lives in a 1.5 million dollar four unit building in river north because it's a 1.4 million because it's a four unit in river north Okay, she's seen unbelievable appreciation since the early 80s when she bought it. You're going to take money out of her pocket? It's wrong. It's ill-advised. It's ill-thought-of. And don't believe the BS of a millionaire's tax. It's wrong. I speak my piece. That's how I feel. There's better ways to do it. Okay. What a note to end on. David Hochberg is now going to fix himself some hot tea and put his feet up, maybe a little blanky. Um, thank you, David. Thank you for being here, as always. All right, so I had a Ray. Are you still with Ray? Are you still hanging with him? Are you still around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't get rid of him. All right. Thanks. So I had a Ray. Happy New Year. Love you. Talk right. to you later. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. We're going to take a break Bye. for news. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Well, from the picture I just saw, it looks like it's take a couple of your dogs to work day, unless that is a very, very professional looking home office. Alderman Raymond Lopez joins us. He represents the uh, 15th Ward, and he is also a congressional candidate. Raymond, how are you doing? How are the puppies? How is your husband? Dogs, husband and everyone else are all good. And yes, that was taken live from the office. Because you usually hear them, but you rarely see them. So I wanted to make sure you <laughs> yeah. got to see them today. Yeah. Where are the rest of them? Uh, sleeping around here somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's I am. Chicago nepotism. My kids are sleeping around here somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. What a parent you are. Um, I have um, a, a second a second puppy now. And uh, she, for some reason, you'll probably enjoy this because uh, usually in the four o'clock hour, she will, um, she'll go off. Uh, I, I don't know if there's somebody who walks by with a dog every day between four and five, um, but chances are before we get off the air, yeah, you you will hear our newest edition join the radio broadcast. So how have you been? I have been well, Joan. Thank you. You know, we are 
glad for the uh, temporary reprieve in the snow and the shoveling and all of that wonderful, wonderful business in the life of uh, a Chicago alderman. Uh, but oh, definitely, I bet, you know, yeah, I bet your phone rings off the hook when we get this kind of weather. Oh, there's plenty of plenty of need out there for help. And, you know, it reminds me of the old, you know, the uh, the comments we hear often of where are all the kids with shovels trying to make some money when the snow happens? You know, that's what we need to bring back in this city. You know, yeah, ab- absolutely. Enterprising youth. <laughs> when when there is a snowfall, I mean, I know that the main arteries always get taken care of first. But once the main arteries are done, are there like, you know, for every ward, is there like one or two snow plows or how do they figure out where they're going after that? You know, there, there's a, a, a system, there's a method to the madness, believe it or not, Joan, um, when it comes to snow removal. Always it's a matter of getting the, the arterial streets before you could do the interior residential streets. Um, and generally speaking, uh, the wards have a certain amount of streets in order to do uh, uh, the, their respective grids. You know, mm. thankfully, streets and sanitation has moved away um, from just eyeballing it, and they actually have a system that is GPS-based, similar to what airplanes use for navigation, uh, where they are able to, when it's summer out, the ward superintendents will do what's called the turn-by-turn, where they will drive through a ward uh, in the anticipation that they were the actual plow making their way through a neighborhood so that you don't have to have necessarily the same person in your ward all the time, but you could interchange or put someone new or add someone to the equation down the road and just give them a GPS device that they could follow without necessarily having to know a particular neighborhood. And that has helped make our snow removal uh, a lot more efficient in terms of clearing residential streets, but also a better use of our labor force because we could track their progress too much better than we used to before. Yeah. Um, Sometimes, you know, it's like when you hear about state and local bureaucracies, it always seems like, you know, it takes um, governments so long to adapt technology to make things more efficient. But this seems to be a case where um, things are are running more efficiently. Have I spoken too soon? You know, I have. (laughs) No, no. Actually, I have to give kudos to the Department of Streets and Sanitation overall, because they've been uh, one of the departments that have been implementing technological advances more than most, particularly for dealing with our crews that are front-facing and on the street every single day. And we've been able to see where those efficiencies have led to greater output without a need for increased manpower. So that's what you want to see in government, where we leaner, meaner fighting machines and just one department that's making it happen. Um, real quick, because... Um, this touches on uh, city services, too. Um, the I just have been reading in various publications about the Bally's Hotel, the hotel that's supposed to be part of the new casino, that they can't build their, I don't know, 38-story hotel because of a problem with water pipes and infrastructure that they might mess up and how they are revising those plans. And um, some people are are saying, you know, how could... How could that situation, you know, with all the studies that have been done and all the plans that were made, how could this not have come to light sooner? And now I guess there's talk of having a little hotel right on top of the casino and then another hotel somewhere else uh, to be named later. 
Um, Have you in the city council, are you guys kept apprised of all this stuff? You know, we have not heard any of the updates. We learn about them as we go, unfortunately, in this administration through the news. But let me just say this, Joan. You know, this was a half-baked proposal from the get-go by Lori Lightfoot that was a bunch of rainbow and unicorn promises that we all knew deep down inside that Bally's was never going to be able to bring to fruition. The fact that Lori Lightfoot tried to tell us that this casino was going to outperform all current 11 casinos in Illinois combined was the first red flag that should have gotten everyone's attention. But so many of her allies dismissed any kind of criticism at the time, saying that it was just sour grapes or racism or whatever other kind of phobia that she wanted to throw at us at the time for questioning how we could not support this wonderful Bally's proposal. And yet here we are where they are underperforming. Now they're blaming site location as to why they can't build what they promised when I think it actually has to do more with their lack of financial capabilities than it does with the infrastructure in place at that location. Because they have been saying for some time now that they haven't been able to generate or acquire the capital for the investment uh, funds necessary to build what they had promised. And this is just the, uh, the latest excuse for them to get out of that part of the RFP that they committed to. Do you think this project is going to come to fruition at any point? I have serious reservations that we're ever going to see what was promised to us by Bally's. And I think at some point we're going to have to pull back our license and reissue an RFP because clearly they are not capable of fulfilling their end of the bargain. They sold us a bill of goods, which we gladly took them up on, and now they are backpedaling, saying that they can't make their ends work. They should have known that. They are a multi-billion dollar corporation who knows how to dot I's and cross T's, and these are just too many to ignore in terms of their inability to effectively produce what they promised the citizens of Chicago. Well, as long as we're talking about uh, development, um, what do you think about the possibility of the White Sox Jerry Reinsdorf and company building some kind of huge entertainment conglomerate on the 78. The state, the city and Bridgeport and indeed the entire South side of Chicago has been very good for the White Sox and for them trying to leave. You know, I think that we have to have a bigger conversation because I think that what we're seeing is that everyone knows that this is basically like a, a buyer's market for sports leagues that want to build up and out. But there's a there's a, a negative impact on communities like Bridgeport and surrounding communities uh, when you create these dead zones by their departure. And we cannot allow that to, to happen. We shouldn't have communities cannibalizing themselves within the city of Chicago in this fashion. And I think that requires us to have a a more thorough conversation about what we're willing to allow, how much tax incentive they are going to ask for, even though they haven't said anything in particular. We know that they do, in fact, want some. And the fact that, you know, because they had guarantees in place by the state, regardless how good or bad their attendance was, they really had no incentive to build up and create uh, a following there the way the Cubs have at Wrigley Field. I think that has to be also brought up in this conversation is, is their lackluster approach at, uh, at building up 
community fan base that can support the more diverse attraction economy associated with any ballpark that they may be in. Um, Alderman Raymond Lopez represents the 15th Ward in the city of Chicago. We are going to take a break. We have lots to talk with him about right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am speaking with 15th Ward Alderman Raymond Lopez, also a congressional candidate. And uh, we have lots of things to get through. So, you know, but the overall one of the I'm interrupting myself because uh, I'm a professional radio host um, with the Bollies, with the migrant situation. Um, it seems like I'm seeing a lot of complaints an increasing number of complaints from local journalists that Brandon Johnson is not being transparent um, not, he hasn't had a lot of uh, news conferences, hasn't made a lot of speeches. Um, apparently, when I don't know if you were in one of the groups recently last week that he called together of older people to talk about the migrant situation, uh, Shia Capos reported that he specifically only met with small groups of older people at a time so he didn't have to fall under the purview of the Open Meetings Act. So these could all be private meetings. A, were you invited to one of those? And are you surprised by a mayor who calls himself progressive and uh, seemingly not being very transparent? Well, no, I was not invited, even though I have a migrant shelter in my ward. I was not invited uh, to one of those briefings, um, and let me just say now that I'm not that I'm going to come to Mayor Johnson's defense, but every mayor I've served under, him, Lightfoot, and Emmanuel, all had briefings, all had this knack for discussing things with small groups to circumvent the Open Meetings Act. So this is not something unique to him, but I will say that he is definitely uh, working very hard, despite his. Uh, outcries to the contrary, to be one of the most uh, secretive and reclusive mayors in Chicago history. Um, and I think we kind of saw this with Lori Lightfoot, too, who's going to bring in the light and then, um, and then flipped off the switch so you couldn't see. You know, Brennan Johnson uh, said he was going to have the most transparent government in history, and yet he's giving uh, FOIA-requested emails that are redacted as if they contain the CIA's information about UFOs on them. Know. You know, it's incredible uh, the extent that people are going through to not let the people, not let the citizens of Chicago see what exactly is going on behind the curtains of government. And it's truly unfortunate because, to be perfectly honest, Joan, there's nothing that secret that's going on in City Hall. Aside from having to keep people's private information private, particularly as it relates to programs, there isn't much need for redaction when it comes to 95% of what we deal with in city government. So it it was stunning for me to see that one email that I think uh, um, Channel 11 or somebody else Yeah, Paris shoots over Mm at TTW. um, With regards to, you know, what was going on at the the 22nd and Halstead shelter, but in the end, he ended up giving out the unredacted version anyway. Yeah, and for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, WTTW 
uh, requested, did a freedom of information request for certain emails because they were investigating a migrant shelter that they knew had a lot of problems. There were problems with water leaks and there were problems with, you know, mold and gook growing. There were just lots of problems. And when the city of Chicago provided the emails, they were so redacted, they were so blacked out that there was virtually no information in them. And then one of the activist community groups that had been involved in this whole uh, situation, they gave WTTW their copies of the same emails, completely unredacted, with all the information about the leaky pipes and everything else. And then... Once TTW had already gotten the information, then the city of Chicago said, oh, well, then we'll give you we'll give you our unredacted email. But it was I mean, they and everybody knew there were problems with the migrant shelter. I mean, I don't understand. You know, I understand. Okay, something really bad goes wrong. Maybe you want to keep a lid on it until you can figure out how to address the issue. But this was something that everybody already knew about. What was the point Right. And this worries me. I've got to tell you, it really worries me. Yeah, it should worry all of us, regardless whom you voted for, regardless who is mayor. You know, the press, first and foremost, has to be able to ask the questions of its elected officials, first and foremost. And we've seen, unfortunately, this administration, this mayor, uh, continuing what Lori Lightfoot started um, what Ron tried to do, but eventually gave up on, was like the on-topic conversations and questions where you're only allowed to talk about with whatever the elected official wants to talk about. You're not allowed to ask questions about things that they're not ready to discuss with you. You know, you're not sharing the, your schedules and who you're meeting with and your emails and your correspondence willingly. You make everything a battle, and that's what you would see in some of those communist states that everyone <laughs> talks so bad about. But yet here we are doing it in the city of Chicago. You know, if you don't like what people are going to find out about, then don't do it. If you want to change a story, do something positive. That's what I think elected officials need to focus on, as opposed to trying to maintain their performance and narratives by any means possible. And I think a lot of that uh, for this mayor is he's trying to project an image that he's in control, that he's in command, and that he knows what he's doing. But what I think he's going to be very... Uh, visible by a lot of these communications and things that people are trying to access is that his team doesn't know what they're doing. They are running out of options by telling the citizenry that they have everything under control and that there's no plan moving forward. You can't hide that forever. (laughs) Was it, um, I think it was Jeanette Taylor, wasn't it, that was uh, doing Ben Jarofsky's podcast a couple of months ago? And she said, you know, um, as a member of the progressive group that's now in power, um, basically, she said, we're in over our head. You know, we told everybody yeah. that, you know, just give us the reins of power and we would know what to do. But it seems like we don't know what to do. No, without question. And it's not even so much that they don't want to know what that they don't know what to do. It's that they don't want to know what to do. They are not looking for help to try to right the ship. Look, we understand who won the election. We understand who his allies are. We get that. Um, but as I told the mayor, it's not going to be people like me that are his undoing. It's going to be his friends who don't know what they're doing and take him down rabbit holes that he's not going to be able to get himself out of. This immigration issue is just one of many bad policy moves that have come back to bite the citizens of Chicago 
because he and his team just did not know how to rein in their allies or to think through what was being proposed. Case in point, the notion of putting in an ordinance to say that we are going to start impounding my, uh, uh, immigrant bus drivers or charge you money if you don't tell us 48 hours in advance, look what that one singular piece of legislation did. It led to a cascading effect throughout the collar counties of Cook County where every municipality started making up their own laws, but not just making up their own laws, but they also decided that if any migrants arrived in their city because of what Chicago did to stop them, they, our suburban fellow mayors, were then in turn shipping them to Chicago because that's where their destination was. They decided locally that Chicago was the destination. It's basically a backdoor way of helping Governor Abbott, which was a, an unintended consequence that the mayor and his team did not think about and are unwilling to backtrack and correct so that we could actually have some stability in addressing this crisis. What do you think the city council is going to do? Because by all accounts, we can expect Greg Abbott to step up his efforts as the Democratic National Convention comes closer because he really wants to uh, embarrass us. Well, I think right now we're doing a good job embarrassing ourselves at the moment. Um, And as far as city council goes, you know, we can point the fingers at the Texas governor all we want. And he has definitely earned a large amount of criticism for his tactics. But his tactics have raised a very good question about the state of the border, our national security, and the broken system that now our president is manipulating and openly acknowledging, along with many of my more extreme left colleagues, that we have to use the back door to get people into this country. And I think that is a very wrong tack to take, that we can't just keep focusing on how to pop open the back window to get people in. We should be fixing the front door, creating a simpler, easier, and more user-friendly path for people to enter into this country. Additionally, you know, for as much as people hoot and holler about wanting to be welcoming, they've completely forgotten about the hundreds of thousands of Mexican, Chinese, Ecuadorian, and European undocumented individuals who've been waiting for a path for decades in this city, let alone this country. We have tens of thousands of DACA qualifying and registered individuals, those youth that were brought here by their parents and have only known the United States their entire life, who aren't citizens and need help, were completely abandoned by not only the federal government, by our members of Congress, but also by my colleagues who don't even mention them ever. We are jumping from the next social cause to the next social cause while not answering the call for those individuals who need help. And we're going to leave key, key Democratic constituencies behind. The African-American community is already fit to be tied with the Democratic Party. We see where individuals are not maybe going to vote for Trump, but they might stay home. And that could, that could be a trend that continues outward into some of those battleground states where we actually need to have a solid lock on the black voting base within the Democratic Party. But if people continue to see that we're supporting things that they are not interested in, that's going to have an impact on us in November. Uh, I'm talking to <clears throat> 15th Ward Alderman Raymond Lopez. We're going to continue our discussion right after a break. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by 15th Ward Alderman and congressional candidate Raymond Lopez. 
Um, I didn't. I saw the document you sent about the ICC decision uh, with people's gas. Can you explain that to my listeners? Sure. Your Your listeners may recall about a month or so ago where people's gas had a proposed rate hike that was before the Illinois Commerce Commission. And the Commerce Commission, as well as some members of the city council, uh, basically said that such a rate hike wasn't necessary. Um, Many of us had concerns about that. I think 14 of my colleagues and I basically stated that while we understand the Commerce Commission's decision not to support the full increase, um, we vehemently objected, objected, excuse me, to the commission's decision to completely pause all aspects of the modernization program, which is where they are replacing many of the gas meters, lines, and connections directly to your homes in communities on the south, on the southwest, northwest sides this year, as well as throughout many of the suburbs and other locations. Uh, multi-year, multi-million-dollar uh, investment project in upgrading the facility. Uh, yeah facilities used by people's gas to connect uh, service lines to houses. But what concerned us most was that, aside from the rate hike to cover future investment, the Commerce Commission also said that any routine maintenance or emergency repairs, emergency repairs would not be allowed in 2024. So they, they overreached themselves, in our opinion, halting $134 million in work already inputted into the program, shall we say, both as a matter of routine as well as what is budgeted for emergency cutoffs and things of that nature. And now if either of those two things have to happen, people's gas will now have to go back to the Commerce Commission in the hopes of receiving quick approval uh, especially for an emergency situation, because now they've basically outlawed any scope of work by people's gas in the state of Illinois, city of Chicago. Is that uh, set in stone? It is now officially set in stone. I think um, what we are we're hoping is that when the Illinois General Assembly convenes, that they will discuss this matter and hopefully overturn it at their level, because clearly, you know, you are putting people's lives, you're putting communities at risk um, in the name of trying to force a green sustainability argument uh, into into the arena. We have to be able to help address routine maintenance. We have to be able to handle emergencies as they come. And for any government agency, especially an unelected one, to basically say that, that no utility can do emergency work. Think back to when all of the power outages happened for ComEd during the recent snowstorm. If they had been handcuffed and told that they could not do emergency repairs without some bureaucratic commission's approval, how long would people have been without power as opposed to giving them the authority to jump and help put people back into the grid? Wow. So where do we go from here? Well, right now, my colleagues and I are continuing the push. You know, unfortunately, we see some of the more extreme members of city council focusing on efforts to further uh, immobilize people's gas as well as natural gas usage in the city of Chicago. Um, and now is not the time for having these kind of discussions, especially as we have so many 
things still on the hot plate, so to speak. Every pun intended. <laughs> um, I think what we need to do is recognize the fact that we're having two different types of conversations in politics right now. And this is so true on many levels, but this is just one example where you have the ideological conversation happening, which is how do you get away from, you know, gas fueled appliances and things of that nature? How do you create a more sustainable green economy, environment, housing, all that? That's a great conversation to have. But at the same time, you have to have one that's also rooted in common sense and, and the immediate impact on both business and residents. And we cannot we cannot pretend like one conversation doesn't exist if we, so we can have the other. Yeah. And I think that's where we have to have a more thoughtful, democratic, deliberative process with our elected officials, whether they are at the city, county, or state level, because just to act as though we are on islands unto ourselves, making policy, making laws, making decisions, ultimately will hurt the voter, ultimately will hurt the consumer, and ultimately will hurt the economy in ways that will take a generation to repair. Well, we've got our work cut out uh, for us. Um, the other thing uh, I wanted to bring up about the way the city um, <laughs> does or does not function a few months ago, I was talking to uh, Scott Wagaspak, and he felt that City Hall really did not understand how the residents of his ward were feeling about crime. I mean, yes, murders are down, and that's wonderful. But as we've seen, you know, robberies and carjackings are not down. They are they are up, and that's the sort of thing that takes place in the neighborhood, and that's the sort of thing that makes people feel really, really unsafe. Um, talk about public safety and what you see happening. Well, I see that we have a uh, superintendent in Larry Snelling who's trying to right the ship after uh, years of David Brown's Texas mismanagement. Um, there's a lot of work to be done there to build up the ranks, but I think absolutely. You know, what concerns me is that you are correct. Robberies, burglaries, uh, battery, those are all three or four times more than they were a year ago. We're seeing 300, 400% increases in those categories. So, you know, we can, we can jump up and down and be happy that homicides are down, but everything else is going the wrong direction. And the reason it's going the wrong direction is because we're not putting enough resources into actually cracking these cases and identifying who are the perpetrators of these offenses. Oftentimes they are minors. Oftentimes they are repeat offenders. And we are learning that now we are often not even trying to collect all the information to make those arrests because we know that the current Cook County State's Attorney is simply not going to prosecute. Because she will not prosecute, our officers aren't even trying to make an arrest. And nowhere was that more prevalent than when just a few blocks away from my ward office in the neighboring ward, we had a, uh, a jewelry store that was robbed in the middle of the day. Three individuals with ski masks and long guns ran in. The store had been open for maybe two weeks and was robbed. Oh. I ran into the police that were there, and they were not even calling for an evidence technician. Because they said without a face to be seen, 
the state's attorney was not going to prosecute. What do you mean without a face to be seen? What about fingerprints? Apparently, the decision of the state's attorney is unless you can ID beyond question who's involved, she will not prosecute. And people know this. Criminals know this. And I even learned this firsthand myself, Joan, when I uh, had gangbangers coming to my house throwing bricks through my windows. The state's attorney in that case said that because even though we caught them on video, because I didn't have a clear enough image of their face for their standards, they were not going to pursue charges on the individual, the individual whom we all knew who it was. That's crazy. I mean, and that is where I think some of the biggest criticisms of Kim Fox and her and Tony Preckwinkle's mentality for social justice and law enforcement has really come into question because we can talk about the ills and the negatives of criminal justice over the decades. But in the here and now, in this moment, you cannot absolve the sins of the past by forgiving all the sins of the present. And we see that time and time again. And I think that when we talk about what are we doing, both in terms of our police and the state's attorney and the courts, you know, our focus right now has to make sure that our house is in order, that our police department is doing everything by the book, which our officers overwhelmingly do right every single day. But what I tell police time and again is that even though you know that we're going to run into this wall with the state's attorney, do your job, arrest who you need to arrest, and show that the, where, the, where the problem stops. Because right now, residents are getting fed up and frustrated because they feel that no one is doing their job to protect them when they call 911. In districts like mine on the southwest side, the 7th, 8th, and 9th districts, you know, our numbers are among the worst in the city, particularly the 8th district, which is responsible for keeping 260,000 people safe in the city of Chicago. But those numbers are, are misleading, even as bad as they are, because people just stop calling 911 because they know that if they call 911 for robbery, probably no one's going to show up. If they're calling because someone's breaking into their house, no one's going to show up. That unless there's a body on the floor, quite honestly, that's when someone will finally show up. And it's unfortunate, but that's where all of this is trickling down from the state's attorney and the courts on down. And we have to work hard to reverse that. I've heard that um, that the police either are going to or are going to work with legislators to revamp hot pursuit rules, because I had heard that in a lot of cases, uh, local Chicago police were actually calling Illinois state troopers because Illinois state troopers could uh, pursue suspects in situations where cops couldn't. Is that still going on? What do you know about that? Yes, I think right now we are all cheering whenever someone tries to flee pursuit and jumps on the expressway because yeah. it's really the only time that we've been able to apprehend them. You know, we have thrown the baby out with the bathwater in a lot of these policies, these pursuit policies because, yes, we do know that police do make mistakes. But we also know that Chicago in particular is, ha- is, is 
really taken advantage of because of the trial lawyers who, through cases like the Monell case, basically automatically state that our training has been so bad in the past that we have to be guilty right now, no matter what the issue is. And oftentimes we're settling cases because of that doctrine here in the state of Illinois, the Monell case. And it's simply not fair for many of our officers who have been trained in a modern policing facility, who have been trained to modern constitutional standards and are still held to that unfortunate Monell standard, which cite that poor training of the past has led to poor decision-making in policing. Right now, our officers are doing the very best with what they can do, despite all the efforts to try and limit what they can do to try to arrest individuals and apprehend suspects who are committing crimes in our communities. These policies of non-pursuit came about as a way of saving taxpayers money, but I think, as I've said oftentimes, we have to make a decision. Is it worth the risk that we may get sued when pursuing someone who committed a crime? Or is it better to let that person just go, flee, and continue on causing criminality in a community? I think we have to focus on catching, po- catching the bad guys. And I think that we need to start fighting some of these lawsuits that we're, that we're targeting our officers when they pursue them. Because oftentimes, when we are settling, it's not because the officer did anything bad. It's because the criminal ran into somebody and hurt them or killed them. And then that person's family blames us as if it was our fault that the criminal was trying to flee. Hmm. The criminal is the problem. Criminal is the one blowing stoplights, flying down the wrong way of neighborhoods, shooting out the window. That is the criminal doing that. But yet Chicago and our police department are constantly on the hook because of all of these precedent-setting cases that now hold us liable because of things that have happened 40 years ago, which most of our officers weren't even around back then to be a part of. Uh, There's more about this whole situation that I want to talk to you about, but we need to take a break. I'm talking to 15th Ward Alderman Raymond Lopez. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Joining me is uh, 15th Ward Alderman and congressional candidate Raymond Lopez. We've been talking about policing, and um, the police have made it clear for a while now that they have felt hamstrung in their efforts to find and arrest the bad guys. The Kim Fox has uh, said she is not running for Cook County State's Attorney again. And we have uh, two Democratic candidates, Judge Eileen O'Neill Burke and Clayton Harris III. Um, Raymond, do you have a feel of whether or not you're ready to support either one of them? Do you think they're the same? Is one better than the other? Well, I don't necessarily think one is the uh, I don't think that they are the same. Um, but I haven't made a specific endorsement as of yet. But I do know that I want someone, and I think so do many in Cook County. We want a state's attorney who's going to be fair, keep an eye on what's truly important, and do the job of prosecuting criminals. And I believe there is only one candidate who has espoused that vocally. Um, But I think it's up to them to make the case. What concerns me is that we keep falling for this racial, you know, rope, okey-doke, 
And we missed the point that by going soft on crime, by going soft on repeat offenders who are just committed to criminality, that we are in fact hurting those black and brown communities that we claim to care so much about. And I think it's time that progressives take a long, hard look as to what that exactly means. When you say that we need criminal justice reform that protects black and brown communities, but at what expense? Because if you're releasing repeat offenders, if you're releasing those gangbangers, if you're releasing those individuals who, no matter how many programs, how many second chances, third chances, tenth chances we give them, they are still going to be committed to the crime and not to breaking the cycle, then what are we really doing in these communities? Mm-hmm. There was um, <clears throat> there was been a move recently to um, bring back community policing. How is that going as far as you know? I think that community policing is great if it leads to changes in a community. Where we have failed is that we are not acting on what residents bring to the table. And if we're not acting on those quality of life issues that everyone wants to see addressed, community policing is not going to work. We need to show, regardless what you call it, that if residents come forward and say, hey, I've got an illegal alley mechanic blocking the alley up all hours of the night and spilling oil down the sewer, that if you tell the police in a cast meeting that they want that the community wants some action done, that there will be some action done. That's what builds trust in the community. That's what builds trust between residents and police. And if we're not doing that, regardless if you call it community policing or district advisory or district council officers or whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it, you have to show results. And the same is true, whether it's police, whether it's elected officials or anything. That when the residents, the constituents talk, that you're acting on what they're bringing to you. Because if you don't, they will never call you again. And that's where yeah. you have to make those inroads with police. Are you, um, when you look at um, safe public safety and policing, are there any measures that you would really like to see um, either Larry Snelling put in place or that the city council should be voting on? Well, I think the metric that we need to put in place is, are, are we addressing, how are we dealing with the calls for service? And are we closing them out because we address them, or are we just closing them out because they timed out? What really concerns me and has concerned me for a few years now is that you have cases, particularly we had homicide cases during the David Brown era, where because there were no witnesses, because there, there was a lack of ability to follow up because of a decimated detectives unit, that cases were just indiscriminately closed. No resolution for the families, no justice for the victim. They were just closed. And I think that we have to start tying outcome to action and mm-hmm. think what exactly that we're doing other than simply scratching it off the list and saying it's complete. Because complete on a spreadsheet does not always equate to complete for the person. And I think that's where we have the greatest amount of challenge and greatest amount of opportunity, because I know that we could show on a dashboard right now the calls that we're getting and what the what the outcomes have been. But I think to be able to say there has been a, a kind of like we do, as you know, we started talking about my daughter and equated the same way. You have to show what the positive live outcome was, like we yeah. do for animal care. 
we take in an animal, we show that it's been rehomed, we show we did X, Y, and Z, and now we've, we've rehomed that, into that animal. We need to have as many metric measurable steps included in what police do so that we show that we're doing more than just simply taking a call and leaving it open or closed uh, from that point. Yeah, and checking a, checking a box. Correct. And so much of government now has just become about checking boxes and not necessarily doing anything. You know, and that's across many departments, which is why when we talk about, again, the technology and things of that nature that, like, streets and sanitation brings, it's not simply checking a box. It's about being able to show in real time the work that we are doing. And for a $16 billion operation, I'm sure we could find the way we could find a way to make that happen. You would think. <laughs> you would think. In the, I know. In, I know yeah. we can. In the in the minute. Well, I, I, well, less... I, will say this, I will say this, Joan. Go I will ahead. say this, Joan. I know we can do that because when, for example, the technology that changed the three one one system, uh, one of the things early on I said is when a person enters a three one one online or through the phone or whatever with the new system, it, it routes it, and you could track it to which department, which this, which that, who gets it, what they're doing. And the moment I said, well. Where's the alderman notified? 49 of my peers gave me the stink eye for nominating us to know what exactly is going on. It's never about whether or not we can do it. It's about the, whether or not we have the will to do it. Well, I, uh, <clears throat> I'm i glad you're there. I am glad you're keeping an eye on things for us, and I'm glad you come on the radio to share with us. Thank you so much. Joan, my pleasure. Next time we'll have to go to the rat hole in Andersonville <laughs> and report live from the sidewalk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been reading about that every day. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, give your husband and all the dogs kisses from me. I appreciate you being here. Uh, that's going to do it for me today. Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Have a great evening, my friends. Stay safe and good night. 